Uh, Susanna, if you would uh, call the roll, please. Look at everyone. Trustee Millett. Present. Trustee Lou Dunant. Present. Trustee Lawrence. Present. We have a quorum. Thank you. Uh, is there a motion to approve the uh, minutes of the November 17th meeting? Why don't I move that? I'll, I'll take that as a motion. Yes, it's a motion. Is there a second? I'll second the motion. Uh, all in favor of uh, approving? Aye. Thank you. Now that'll uh, take us to uh, really the uh, principal purpose of this special meeting, which is the. Uh, we, we did. Well, we had a, we had a, a quorum. <laughs> uh, I'll wake you up for anything to substitute. Thank you. Uh, why don't we go ahead uh, with the presentation of the uh, external audit report, please. All right. Well, good evening, trustees. I am going to present to you the results of the 2015 audit, which will include the basic financial statements um, and the single audit this evening. So you should have three reports within your packet. We have the basic financial statements, which we have issued an unmodified opinion on the financial statements. That is the highest level of assurance that we could provide you as your auditors that your financial statements are presented in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles. Uh, there were several significant changes to financial reporting, primarily with the implementation of the new pension standards, uh, the addition of the, count, or the uh, HSS obligation for the county's pension obligation bonds, as well as a pension trust fund related to the Alameda Hospital Pension Plan. We're going to go over that in a little bit more detail in a minute, but I just wanted to highlight those, those changes. We're also going to go over our report to the Board of Trustees, and this includes our annual required communications as well as our current year recommendations. And then finally, we're going to be discussing the single audit which we did have a qualified opinion on compliance this year on the same program as last year. It was one of the HIV programs. And we also are going to go over the findings related to the single audit. So the basic financial statements, uh, you can find those on page 8 of your packet. And this year, in our audit opinion, which begins on page 12, we, in the very first paragraph, we have three opinion units. We have the business type activities of the Alameda Health System, um, which is your general operations. We also have the discreetly presented component unit, similar to last year, which is the foundation. And then finally, the third opinion unit uh, that we have is, is a new one. This is the pension trust fund related to the Alameda Hospital Pension Plan that AHS had assumed uh, fiduciary responsibility over in the acquisition of Alameda Hospital. Um, there are four emphasis of a matter paragraphs in within our opinion, and remember this is a clean opinion, but there are four items that we wanted to bring to your attention and, and the reader's attention. Uh, the first one is a carryover from last year. This is the acquisition of the hospitals, and because you have a dual year presentation where you're reporting both the activity of fiscal year 2014 and 15, there are going to be some carryover disclosures and, and some emphasis here. The second item is the liquidity item. Uh, this had been identified in years past as um, 
a potential challenge and, and, and an actual issue for Alameda Health System. Um, we commented this year that the 2015, it, it was slightly better. Uh, we saw a drop in the, um, the loan with um, the county. Uh, we know that there are a number of programs in place, and I, having attended these audit committee meetings, uh, management has shared with you um, those plans and those programs and the results of those programs. So we do see improvement in terms of the operations of Alameda Health System. Uh, we also have identified the implementation of the new pension standards and finally the recognition of the pension obligation bond liability. Now with the implementation of the new pension standards, there was a restatement to the financial statements of $154 million in the negative for the beginning net position. And that's to bring on the accounting records, um, the effect of the pension liability from previous years. Now at the end of the year, um, the pension liability that was reported was uh, $293 million. And that represents three pension plans, the biggest being with the SARA, so about 200 and, uh, well, about 293. Um, the change is your other two pension plans. You do have the Alameda Hospital pension plan, and then there's a new defined uh, benefit pension plan that AHS has begun that participants are eligible for benefits in fiscal year, or at least begin accruing those in fiscal year 2015. Now there's also some new accounts on the face of the financial statements. They're deferred amounts. And these are gains and losses that the actuary is measuring um, when they annually measure the pension liability. And these are going to be amortized over time and incorporated in the pension expense. So there's gains and losses in them looking at the actual actuarial experience there's gains and losses in projected versus actual investment um, returns and whatnot. So there will be continued to be some deferred amounts that will be amortized, and those are going to show up on the face of the statement of net position or your balance sheet. And then finally, with the implementation of the new pension standards, we have the uh, additional required supplementary information and that's after the basic financial statements. Um, that is going to be beginning on page 77 of your packet. And what management will be building over time in this required supplementary information is trend analysis on the net pension liability and related amounts. Um, I know that we are limited on time tonight, but if you'd like me to walk you through the new pension disclosure and the financial statements, I'd be happy to do that, or I can continue on and let you ask me questions on this, because I know that this is a big change within financial reporting. Let me ask those of you who will have a longer association with this committee uh, what your needs are with that respect. Let's go through respect to the pension obligation. I'm sorry? I'm sorry. Can we talk you want me to continue on? Okay. No, well, sure, go ahead. Continue on that. We'll, uh, we'll build up questions. Okay, sure. All right. Uh, the next significant change within the financial statements is the addition of AHS's obligation to the county related to the pension obligation bonds. The county issued pension obligation bonds back in 95 and 96. 
And when AHS went off from the county, there was a portion that was identified related to AHS. Now, AHS has been paying those pension obligations, uh, their portion, basically on a pay-as-you-go basis. So the amount that's been paid to the county on an annual basis has been expensed. Management re-looked at this issue, um, and you do have fairly new management um, in these positions, and asked the question on why this debt was not included on the statement in that position in previous years. And, um, what we did was we asked management to get a legal determination from the attorney on if, uh, if AHS was legally required to pay this debt. Now the county is, they're on the hook for it. Within the bond documents, the county is referenced as uh, the legal obligator to pay the debt. But it was determined by your attorneys that this debt is a legal obligation of the health system so it was added to the financial statements this year. There was a restatement to the that position of $59 million for 2015. Now, because you have a dual-year presentation report, um, we rolled it all the way back, or had management roll it all the way back to 2014. So there was an adjustment to the 2014 beginning balance of $70 million. So there was a little bit of a pay down um, between the two years. And, we are looking, or we did look at the amortization schedule. We know that the county and AHS is working on a new agreement. There's an interim agreement in place. And so we did consider that, that that's the likelihood that that agree, uh, the gr agreement will stand as is. And so that's how this debt was accounted for, as well as the amortization schedule that's included in the report. Is there any doubt that we would owe that money? I think the question previously is, would the county have put a receivable on the books of you owing that money? And I think that there was a hesitation probably at the county level on whether you could not, um, over time, just looking at the working capital loan, that you'd be able to continually pay it on a regular basis. Now, I don't know if the county's recorded a receivable. This portion, I think, would be considered immaterial to their operations overall. Um, but it was appropriate, we believe, to be added to the books this year. Yeah, no, I do but it's too. not immaterial to us. It's not immaterial to you. And, and it really doesn't, in my mind, it doesn't matter whether the how the county might be accounting for it. It's, now, we should be doing it correctly. Absolutely. And I will say that this debt had always been disclosed in the financial statements of the health system, um, but again, it was an expense line item annually, and so the, the full debt was not on the financials on the face of the financial statements. And when did that when did that debt come on to our record to our books? That would have been um, this year in 2015, or, or this past fiscal year. So what prompted it to come on our books? There was a question actually by your CFO. Yeah, I, on think, I think you may be asking a different question. Yeah, when, when did we first record the payments? Oh. Yeah, when, when did it actually in reality become our obligation? Um, Not whether it's an asset or an That's right. Understood. Thank you. For okay. That. Uh, it's when the health system split off from the county, so I, you know, I don't have that date right in front of me, but. Um, 98. 98. Many years ago. 98. <laughs> it's not a new credit card purchase. No. <laughs> um, is there anything else like this floating around in our balance sheet that's material that we 
you to attend to? Not that I'm aware of. Um, no. Great. That seems to address that. All right, the last significant change within the financial statements was the addition of the pension trust fund, and this is related to the Alameda Hospital Pension Plan. Um, when the health system uh, acquired Alameda Hospital, there was a, well, in your operational terms, probably fairly insignificant pension plan out there. Um, it was identified, um, I believe in May of 2015, it, it came to management's attention, or at least uh, the, uh, the um, uh, finance office's attention, uh, bank account. There was a uh, bank statement that had been identified with about $1.6 million of assets. And so there was a question about what this was. Um, it was identified as a pension plan that AHS had assumed responsibility, fiduciary responsibility for. An actuarial evaluation was conducted under GASB 68, the new pension standard, to identify what the liability related to this particular pension plan was. And that's been included in the financial statements. But because AHS has a fiduciary responsibility over these assets, um, GAP basically says that a pension trust fund should be reported within your financial statements and there is administrative responsibility over this. I did confirm this um, with the Human Resources Department. I confirmed it. Um, you have an actuary that's helping with some administrative activities as well as you have the bank. Now the bank does hold a trust account, but they have confirmed to us that they are not the trustee of this trust account. And going through documents, um, very old documents, from Alameda Hospital, we noted that the hospital administration was the trustee, and thus the uh, health system administration assumed that fiduciary responsibility. So now it's reported within the financial statement. So at the end, of fiscal year 2015, there was about $1.7 million of assets that were part of the fiduciary responsibility. How many lives does that cover? How many lives does it cover? Um, you know, I believe... I guess what I'm trying to book around is that, is that amount that seems like a small number for a pension well, for a large organization. It's actually, it's a very small plan, and I'm trying Just to see if I can yeah. identify disclosure here. Um, there, if you look on page 66 of your packet, this is the section discussing Alameda Hospital Defined Benefit Plan. And uh, toward the top of page 66, there's a table that shows you the participants of the plan. about 100 lives, in other words. And at the end of the fiscal year, that equated based on the current assumptions, um, there was a pen, net pension liability recorded in the financial statements of, um, I believe it was 712,000.
million dollar net pension liability. So that's our share of the countywide. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. How comfortable are we with both the evaluation of the uh, county's calculation as well as our the calculation of our share of that? The valuation was independently audited um, okay. at the ACERA level, and we did rely on that as well as doing additional procedures. We looked at the reasonableness of the assumptions that were used within the valuation. Um, we recalculated your proportionate share. Um, we tied back the fiduciary net position to the audited financial statements of the SARA. So there was a number of procedures that we went through to validate that amount. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a large number and I know that figures like this have a, there's a lot of assumption that goes into it. Absolutely. And particularly this one, we have little control over it. So, well, you will have. I, I don't have any reason to feel that it's wrong, but I just it's, it's a big number that. You know, I think only management supported that we, we, we believe that the <coughs> current actual valuation uh, is correct given the assumptions and allocation methodology currently approved by the Sarah board, but we, we've, uh, we believe that that methodology may not reflect changes in the um, uh, membership of the plan since uh -huh. its inception. <clears throat> and we're having an independent review uh, conducted right now. That okay. issue. So Dave, are you saying that the figures are right, but the philosophy may be wrong? Is that is that what you're saying? I'm not. Yeah, we think that the underlying philosophy may no, no longer be appropriate given the changes in the, the but numbers. But given, given, given the application, the figures are correct. Yes. It's just that we're, we're discussing whether or not the manner in which they apply yeah. could yeah. use some tweaking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They, they did the arithmetic correctly. But. All right. So that's all you've, you've looked at is the arithmetic. Yes. Um, and we looked at the basis of measurement of the overall net pension liability for the ACERA plan. That, that total liability, I believe, is sitting at about $1.3, $1.4 billion, give or take $100 million here. Um, and obviously, the county has a majority of that particular share. Sure. Um, but yeah, you know, these liabilities, they are estimates. There's a lot of uh, assumptions that go into them. These liabilities will be remeasured every fiscal period, so you're going to see additional changes, um, and those changes will typically come through these deferred amounts that I had previously mentioned there. Uh, one thing I do wanted to point out is, is the concern bringing on this liability, and we talked about this with management, was about the difference in pension expense. Um, under the old method, you were basically contributing based on an actuarially required contribution. So as long as you're paying that particular contribution in a given year, you wouldn't have had a liability accruing on your financial statements, and that contribution equated to pension expense. Um, I believe for fiscal year 15, um, 
that contribution was about $40 million that required contribution. Um, with the change in the accounting, because remember, you're going to continue to fund as you always have, and there, there will be a funding valuation that management will receive in terms of what they're required to fund annually. Um, but there is a change in accounting in terms of how it gets reported in the financial statements. And so the pension expense was somewhere around $50 million. So it went up about $10 million with the measurement and the change in how um, these liabilities are accounted for. So in other words, our cash out the door was for, stated $40 million, but the expense that we incurred was 50, so there's an extra $10 million of liability liability of the group. Um, I, I don't understand. Can you explain? Um, I can, but um, yes. in, in pension accounting, there's um, how much you're required to book as an expense right. and how much you're required in cash to put it in the plan every year. <clears throat> Historically, those have been the same. With this new change, they're now different. And the amount that you're putting in cash is staying the same. But the amount we have to record as an expense on the interim statement has increased. Okay, so let me see if I can. So, knowing that there were individuals who retired every year, you had to have money in cash to pay them for their retirement. Yes. And, but at the same time, we also had to put money in the bank for those people who intended to retire in future years, not in the current cash year. That's true. Okay, so now what is required is that it's all in one, under one, thing. is that? No, there, there's, um, there, there just simply means that there's two calculations instead of one. It used to be there's one calculation which was, well, how much money do you need to put in to take care of not, not only uh, current employees, but future benefits. Right, okay, and, and that's we, on an actuarial. Yeah, actuarial. Okay. We put the money in and we would record that as expense on the income statement. Okay. Now, there's two calculations. There's how much you need to put in and how much you're accruing as an expense, and those numbers are now different. And that's the big change with GAN 68. Let me try to amplify this, maybe. Um, well, you know, I don't want to take okay. everybody. I can that's talk okay. with you offline. If, yeah. I mean, I this would actually probably be a good it, it would be a good topic offline. It would also be a good education topic for the full board because I think the, the, the differences become, can become potentially huge when, you know, like stock or bond markets start to fluctuate a lot. Okay. So, you know, you can, you know, we can, so it might be a good, it might be a good thing to educate the board on but before we, I mean, I, I understand. I, I'm not understanding the accounting pro process. Yeah. Is what I think is right. because really I mean, I understand that we have to really pay arcane. for people who are in our organization who, yeah. you know, may at some future date retire. We've got to have money put aside for their for their for their needs, and, and at the same time, we've got to be able because people are retiring month by month. So you might have ten people in this month that retire, and they've got to be able to get a check. For their retirement. So I understand the issue. I think I'm understanding the idea of having cash ready to pay out for those people and putting money in the bank for the future people. Right. The cash part has not changed. The cash part has not changed. <clears throat> we still need to do the calculation and put a certain amount of money. Okay. So what's the part that has changed then? The part that's changed is, is that we're not 
mm. the amount that we book as an expense on the income statement mm. is no longer the same as the amount of cash that we put in the bank. There's slightly different calculations. There are some differences in terms of how the actuary is measuring certain items. Some of that includes how they're going to amortize gains and losses that they identify in their calculations. So the, the actuarial methods have slightly changed for this accounting piece where they haven't changed for your funding piece. So most of it's going to be within the actuarial calculation. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really an accounting yes, issue. It is. It is. Yeah, it okay. is. But, it, but it, because you're dealing with big numbers, the those little it differences can be fairly large yes. sometimes. But for the record, I'm still happy I was an art major. So <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I'd let you guys know that. If, if for, for whatever it's worth, this is one of the least favorite things of most people, even who like accounting. So. It's really arcane. Yeah, it's very arcane. And, um, closely resembles um, alchemy in many ways. Wow. Okay, thank you. I'm sorry to take your time. I apologize. So, if I, if I can, and only if it's a, uh, a relatively straightforward answer, because I'm not in that group of people who are also the people who like accounting. But is there a, is there a sort of a straightforward just uh, explanation of why there is a difference now between the, the money you have to set aside in the valuation? Is um, it a straightforward one? No, there's not a straightforward okay. one. It, it, it'll take some time and we have to go through the valuation reports and look okay. at those differences. Well, let me say this. I think over a long period of time, those two numbers are the same. Okay. I, I think part of the objective of, you know, one of the objectives of, of, of the accounting is to say, well, you know what? We can't give you a bill for this much one year and that much for the others. Please even it out for us, the organization. So okay. good. Give us to forty million dollars a year, and on average, we'll be fine. But just to keep everybody honest, you know, I mean, people, you know, I mean, what are you doing? You you have this huge pool of retirees or people who might retire, mm -hmm. and well, some people leave the organization, and so you make it, you change your opinion about how much you owe them. Other people live longer, some die sooner. Um, you're investing the money. Your evaluation of what, how the investment, how the market, how, how the market goes, and the investment income that'll change over time. Because you're dealing with such huge sums of money, even tiny little changes in those assumptions will change your evaluation of how much you ultimately have to pay out and how much all your assets are worth. Got it. Okay. So. Okay. It's a fuzzy math. <laughs> well, no, it, it's 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 very precise math. But you're, you're you're going on. There's a lot of a lot of variables. There's a lot of you could, you could call it guesswork. You could call it intelligent estimation. But you know, hopefully you're doing your best to figure it out. But that changes all the time. I do want to add one thing with yeah. the the explanation on the actuarial side. There could be a timing difference too, in terms of your when your cash when you actually make your cash contributions and when they actually get recognized. And and one thing I do want to point out is that when these liabilities are measured, it's actually as of the year before. So we're reporting as of uh, uh, um, sorry June 30th, 2015. Now a Sarah's year end. <laughs> Uh, is 12-31-2014. So the liability actually got measured as of 12-31-2014.
any contributions that were made subsequent to that measurement period, they're actually a deferred amount. So they're not included in pension expense, they don't go against the liability, they'll be captured in the next valuation period. And GASB allowed the plans um, and employers to measure these liabilities um, a year to six months in arrears to make it a little bit easier because of the complexity of what uh, actuaries as well as the plans had to go through. So the reality of it, it just wasn't necessarily feasible. There's very few plans that are going to be measured exactly on the same date as their fiscal year end. Now one of your smaller plans in your report is actually um, measured on the same date, but it's very contained um, and um, management has control over it and the actuary is able to quickly be able to generate those amounts. But for every other plan, there's going to be arrears and there's going to be tiny differences in some of this recognition. Yeah, well, let me just say that we're hoping to bring in uh, <clears throat> Karen Mack, who is our actuary, to give an educational session. Oh, we're not yeah. pitching the county, but we wanted to wait until we had some of the information on the Cicera um, philosophy issue before we did that. But we'll probably do in the next few months. <laughs> well, we, we, could have, we could have the board meeting wherever you're going to be. Um, that, includes my, that concludes my overview of the financial statements. Unless there's any other questions, we can move on to the report to the Board of Trustees. I think we should move on. Okay. All right, so the report to the Board of Trustees, that begins on page 80 of your packet. And similar to last year, we have several communications that we need to make at the end of an audit engagement. Those begin on page 86. And they're very similar to last year. Um, the first being we have the qualitative aspects of accounting practices, and that includes reference to where the significant accounting policies can be found within the financial statement, which is note number two. If there were any significant changes in accounting policy, we would highlight those for you, and we've already talked about all of them um, with the new pension standards, the new pension trust fund, and the addition of the, of the AHS's obligation to the county for the pension obligation bonds. Um, also in this section, there's a discussion of significant accounting estimates. And those are similar to last year with the exception, again, of the net pension liability. So what we reported on was the allowance for contractual adjustments and bad debt for patient accounts receivable, uh, the third-party payer settlements and receivables related to allowances and other liabilities, depreciation estimates related to capital assets, accrual and disclosure of compensated absences, self-insurance liabilities, the new one, net pension liability, and then we have the other post-employment benefit obligation, which is your retiree health benefits. So those are all the significant estimates within your financial statements. We've identified the basis of those estimates, and also we've looked at the methodology of these estimates as part of our audit process to determine the propriety, and we found no issues there. Uh, the next item to communicate is difficulties encountered in performing the audit. Um, I would say that we had no difficulties with management during the audit process, but there were several difficulties um, or challenges uh, during the audit process, and those mainly relate to all of the, the new items within the financial statements. 
the pension liability was very significant. Uh, we were getting changes in, in understanding of what's required on a daily basis from the national level in terms of our profession discussing um, the various issues that were going on. Um, one thing too is you not only implemented this for one pension plan, you implemented it for three. Now ACERA is the largest, but if you look through the note disclosures and you're not real sleepy at night, you can see that those disclosures expanded significantly over last year. And so there just are a number of issues trying to get through. This is the first year of implementation and many organizations, actually almost every single one of them, have had challenges going through this and, and getting through making sure that all the, the appropriate disclosures were in there. Uh, the second item that we had a challenge with was just the methodology of the compilation of the schedule of expenditures of federal awards. And this is the schedule that's reported in your single audit. And there was a, a significant change there that we're going to go over related to one of the programs. And when I came on board to audit your organization, um, I questioned one of your programs. It was the medical assistance program or, or the MAW program and how that was being reported. Um, I went up to the county to ask them some pointed questions and honestly they were no help in terms of giving guidance to the organization. Um, I've talked to several folks at our national expert panel for state and local governments and received guidance there. So there, there was just some challenges in making sure that you're reporting the right methodology um, going forward. So I'm going to go over a little bit about that when we get to the single audit, but that took some time. Um, the last item that was one of our challenges was just identifying the documents and, and getting the disclosures appropriate for the new pension trust fund. Um, there's a lot of required disclosures related around the investment accounts and it may seem like a fairly small balance um, of all of uh, AHS's other investments in cash, um, but there's quite a bit that goes into that and we also had a recommendation on how to better evaluate that and work through some policies there. I, I just have a little question. It's a little hard to frame, but uh, when we talk about ACERA and the kinds of judgments and audit functions we perform, it feels as if it is our pension plan as opposed to our merely being a participant in a plan with others and um, I just don't understand why uh, I'm not asserting that you're doing anything wrong by the way it's a question why when it's not our plan does it feel so much like our plan that, that actually is probably the most significant change of gas 68 because it was treated sort of arm's length and the underlying theme of this is you need to view this as your plan. So it's like they've parceled it out and made us reflect everything on our books. We don't have control over any aspect of it, do we? <clears throat> um, By sitting on the board, know, we, having representation. Well, do we? We, 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 we attend meetings, we discuss, we, I don't, I don't uh, we discuss assumptions, we attend reviews they have with participants, yeah. we have input, I wouldn't say we have control. Yeah, we have the, they have an independent board, an independent CEO, and uh, yeah. we don't have control. No, but, but we're just, we fund, uh, 
you know, as we're doing with this philosophical issue I mentioned, we're, we're going to contest uh, potentially some of the assumptions they're using and ask them to change it. And if they don't like it, then we can make a decision whether we want to continue as a participant or not. Well, again, I'm, I'm not asserting that, that we're doing anything that isn't necessary to do. Uh, it just uh, has an awkward feel about it, given uh, it's, it's not our yeah, well, this change really forces uh, our board to be uh, much more engaged with these issues than we have in the past. Maybe that's the the accounting message. standards, um, a plan like ASERA, the plan itself is really considered a fiduciary administrator. So at the end of the day, the liability owed to the participants or the employees or retirees within the plan is actually not the plan's liability. It would be I think that's the answer to my question. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand that. So. Um, moving on within our report, uh, the next required communication corrected and uncorrected misstatements. Um, we accumulate misstatements or audit adjustments as part of our process. And um, to the extent that we've identified material misstatements, we would report those to you. Also, if we identify misstatements that are determined to be insignificant or immaterial that were not corrected within the financial statements due to a variety of reasons, management would need to sign off on those and actually accept responsibility, um, we would identify those for you. Now, we did not identify any material misstatements within our audit. But on the very last page of the report on page 97, you'll see a number of adjustments, um, uncorrected adjustments. These are immaterial or insignificant adjustments that were identified during the audit process that management evaluated and determined that the cost benefit just wasn't there um, at that point in time to correct those items. Uh, some of them relate to timing differences, uh, maybe with the accruals. Others re relate to estimate true-ups. And so we just accumulate those, um, you know, for consideration and, and review. Um, but management did attest in their signing of the management rep letter that these misstatements or uh, uncorrected uh, misstatements would not be significant to the financial statements, and we agree. Um, if we did disagree, we would have had them adjust those within the financial statements. Uh, we didn't have. A Could you give an what? example? I'm sorry. Could you give me an ex give me just on that page 97? Could you sure. give me an example of something that was uncorrected? And I mean, I some of this is insignificant dollar amounts, and so I. But give me an example. Um, for example, let me find one here. Um, we go down to maybe. Number 11, uh, just at the bottom of the page, we have an adjustment for other operating revenues and due from County of Alameda. And so it was determined that there were, um, okay, so this was an adjustment to true up revenues related to the MA program um, when we looked at the reference, actually, that might not be a good one. Let's go to number nine. Number nine is a good one. This, will, this is a timing difference issue. So number nine, we had identified an accrual um, that should have been recorded. So essentially an expense that should have been recorded, but it hadn't been paid as of year end. So accounts payable um, 
uh, payable should have been reported on the financial statements. But that didn't occur, so that expense was not captured within the fiscal year of reporting. Now, well, maybe, maybe a better question for me to ask is <coughs> explain the debt issue and the credit issue so that I understand is this, is this something that we didn't do and then it's rectified by, by getting these figures back into the budget? Is that what that is? Right. Well, the, what so does this list mean to me? Understood. Um, so these, had these been recorded, um, the financial statements would have reflected the actual activity of the health system. But these items, because they were insignificant, we identified them and we, we felt that the financial statements were not materially misstated. They were still in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles. But um, they, the financial statements do not reflect this activity right now. So these debits and credits, these are accounting entries. So for that example in number nine, your expenses are understated by 19, almost $20,000 for this particular item. Is it sort of the same when you're going through sort of reconciling a checkbook and you're about 350 yeah. short and so you just put in 350 and either add or subtract that so that it balances out? Well, I suppose what strikes me is when you think of the thousands of things that go through this organization, I mean, thousands, and this is all the ins I think that, yeah, that's really pretty good. I'm, this, I thought. Yeah, this, this is a required reporting disclosure to you as the board, so you're aware of items that may not have been corrected. But again, this has no impact on our opinion. Um, we still have issued a clean opinion. Um, you're not going to catch everything all the time. Well, I mean, we're dealing yeah. with human beings, but this, this is really, there's not many on here that tells me that somebody's minding the store. If there was something significant, we would have had uh, management recorded. Otherwise, we would have modified our opinion and okay. not been able to provide a clean opinion. Okay. Thank you. What, what is the materiality threshold? I ask because I'm looking at a few of these relative fairly large dollar figures. So what is the materiality threshold for saying that's as minor versus this is material? You know, the, the lower level, I think we're about 9 million, 9 to 10 million. Okay. Which is, that's about 1% of revenue, and on the balance sheet, what's that? Assets. You know, our benchmark is really looking at your revenues. revenues. Okay. So, all right. Okay. Oh. Thanks. Um, during our audit process, back to our required communications, we had no disagreements with management. Um, uh, management signed a representation letter at the end of the engagement accepting responsibility for the financial statements. Um, to our knowledge, there was no consultation with other 
independent accountants looking for um, basically the second opinion. Um, and then there were really no other findings or issues that we needed to report um, under this context. Uh, regarding, there is a section for other matters and we just wanted to bring to your attention the required supplementary information which relates to your, your pension. Okay, um, under our required communications, we have our current year recommendations. Uh, there's three categories of recommendations. We have the material weakness, which if, it, if something like that was identified or a condition was identified as a material weakness, that means that um, it's likely that a material weakness could occur or has occurred, I'm sorry, a material misstatement. Um, so this is a condition in the internal controls that a material misstatement could occur within the financial statement that has the potential to impact an opinion. Um, a significant deficiencies, these are uh, less in nature from a material weakness, but we still feel that they're significant enough to bring to the attention of the governing board. And then we have a control deficiency, which is um, lesser in nature, um, and essentially more of a management type housekeeping type comment. So we did not identify any material weaknesses in internal control over financial reporting. We did identify four significant deficiencies, the first being capital asset management. And around this particular comment, these were essentially policy issues. So we had um, we had identified that a periodic or periodic physical inventories of capital asset or fixed asset balances was not conducted. And um, also we noted that there was no policy on evaluating for impairment to ensure that anything impaired was uh, written off and that you're not continually to depreciate impaired items. Um, so again, these are policy issues. Uh, the second item, contracts management. Um, we identified uh, a couple issues in contracts. Um, for revenue, we tested 40 items and we noted that the health system was up operating under an expired contract. Um, and so that, uh, I understand, has been addressed once we brought that to management's attention. Is just one such contract enough to create a material uh, deficiency? Well, out of 40. So yeah. you have to remember our sample population is uh -huh. very small. So you extrapolate from 40. Yeah, so if we have an error rate, um, you know, even one, we may have something reportable. But really, this contracts management was in the context of the whole findings. So in this particular issue on the revenue side, it was one out of 40. On the expense side, we identified um, two out of 10, which was a higher error rate, where we noted that certain terms of contracts were not appropriately captured in the monitoring system. Uh, the next item uh, relates to information systems. We did an evaluation of the general controls over information systems, and we've done this in years past, and actually we've, we've closed out prior year findings and basically rolled them forward into a new finding here. And there were a number of items within this finding um, that um, best practices and good control environments uh, would address. Uh, the first being risk assessment, second being vulnerability scanning, 
uh, data storage and portable media protection and um, the um, device identification within a system. And then the last issue was... Excuse me, so where, yes. so where are we on those? So are they all... As I remember our talking about mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Well, from my understanding, uh, based on management's response, a risk assessment has been performed, um, but there are still areas within that risk assessment that should be addressed um, to, to identify. And I think vulnerability scanning, there has been discussion and um, uh, Vulnerability scanning is planned. We're, we're making significant network changes, so we didn't want to scan and then make significant changes and then essentially make that worthless. So that scan will happen in the first quarter of 16 uh, after our new Comcast network is locked up and live across the enterprise. And on the on the risk assessment, I'll just add, there, there's two different standards that were discussed. So you're talking about the NIST standard, mm -hmm. which is one standard, and we're using the HIPAA standard which is a different set of rules and regs on, on what must be tested. And so there's there's some gap in that, and we can look at, I, we will look at that as we move forward on that. Thank you, Jay. The last item in this category is the Alameda Hospital Pension Plan Trust. Um, as I mentioned previously, there are trust documents, but they are outdated, and they do need to be updated um, for AHS's fiduciary responsibility. <coughs> The other item is related to asset management within the trust. Um, there's a number of risks that are identified in the accounting standard that don't appear to be addressed in the current policies um, for the, the trust itself. So uh, management is looking at that and also will be talking to the, um, the bank and, and to figure out how best to address those risks. And then the last, in that in that instance, and Dave, this probably goes to you. What what is the relationship between the Alameda Hospital Board and and us relative to trust documents and asset management? Are they completely out of it? What how does how does that relationship work? Yeah, I believe that that responsibility has been transferred to us. We are now the fiduciary. Totally. Right. Yes, in our investment committee, our investment committee that we established over this year, basically provides the oversight of all the plans that come in that out. That would be me. 
so I will be uh, monitoring the status of corrective action and reporting back on those at uh, future meetings. Okay. So you're going to make them all go away next year? I sure hope so. Awesome. Alright, the last report, we have the single audit report. There's two <coughs> independent auditor's reports within this document. Um, the first is a report in accordance with government auditing standards. And this addresses our consideration of internal control and compliance over financial reporting. And so you'll see later on in the single audit report that all the findings, the significant deficiencies that I just went over are also required to be repeated within this report. And um, so the second independent auditor's report, uh, this relates to uh, our report in accordance with OMB Circular A133. So this is the, the consideration or, or we're actually giving an opinion on compliance um, as well as our consideration of internal controls over compliance. Now, we did have an opinion modification. We did qualify the opinion for um, one of the two major programs that we selected for testing. This is the HIV care formula grant program. It's the same program we tested last year. We were required to test it again. Um, we found similar issues within this program related to eligibility. And looking at um, the timing of when we tested this program, uh, last year versus this year and when corrections had been made. Really a lot of these findings and tests and the tests that we had were prior to the corrections from when we identified it last year. And it, it's, it's a timing issue in terms of when we actually do these audits, which are after the fiscal year end. Um, I did select a few items that were subsequent to that correction date and I did note that those records seem okay. It was very minimal, but there was enough I identified during the, the year within the records that caused me to qualify the opinion again and also um, write up another material weakness very similar to last year. And this was your documentation on eligibility requirements you, for the HIV care formula grant. You, I think you went a little more quickly over, <coughs> excuse me, Compliance, where you note a uh, modified opinion and yeah. material weakness. Yes. What uh, What was your uh, What were the issues that were of a concern to you there? Um, that That's what I was just discussing. Oh. Is the qualification related? Oh, it relates back to yes. HIV. Yes. Okay. I it thought does. that was a separate. Uh, yes. No. It, it's all the same. Um, yeah. So the slide probably doesn't flow as well as it probably could have. But the HIV program um, was the program that caused the okay. qualification as well as the material weakness. The second program we selected for testing was the medical assistance program. Um, this is the one that we had some challenges with in terms of identifying the proper reporting um, of expenditures on the schedule of expenditures of federal awards. Prior to fiscal year 2015, an estimate was reported on the schedule of expenditures of federal awards and that estimate essentially was the prior year actual expenditures. So it was a bit challenging identifying what the population was and how these expenditures should be reported because of the timing on when you need to submit your claims to the county. They're not due until 18 months, I believe, after the end of each quarter. And so what was happening is that um, 
the health system was waiting to prepare these claims um, for submission within the county's deadline instead of looking at them sooner, reconciling them to the current year of financial activity, and being able to report actuals uh, on the schedule of, federal award, schedule of expenditures of federal awards. So what we did this year is we worked with the health system, and the health system actually reported two years of expenditures on the face of their financial statements to catch up for these estimates that had previously been reported. And so we went ahead and we audited both years of the medical assistance program. We did provide an unmodified opinion on compliance, but we did identify a significant deficiencies in internal control over compliance. And this base, this essentially relates to time survey documentation. Within this particular program, uh, staff that are part of the program need to survey their time that uh, rolls into allocations in terms of how expenditures are getting claimed within the program. So we did identify a number of documentation issues um, that weren't in accordance with the state requirements. And then we also um, identified um, one quarter in one of the sub-programs that there were some allocation issues that may have resulted in just under $4,000 of question costs. If I could ask you to pause there for just one second. Uh, as I indicated, I've got a uh, commitment at 7 o'clock, and I, I have to leave for that. But I want to thank you for the um, 75% of the presentation that I heard. And note that uh, I think you and your firm have been responsive to our concerns from last year about uh, uh, the report out on the uh, external audit. And, uh, I appreciate that. And, uh, I've also Appreciate and enjoyed serving on this committee and uh, wish you well for uh, the rest of the meeting in the new year. Thank you. Prepare. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks, Kurt. <clears throat> yeah. Last meeting. <laughs> Who's in charge? <laughs> oh, yeah. We have to have that. There's still a quorum here. Who's the chair? I take that as much not me, not not me, Michelle, as <laughs> as anything else. But, uh, it's like, for God's sakes, not me. You got well, my looks. You see, you're learning my looks. That uh, I'm in charge here. <laughs> Uh, that concludes my remarks on the single audit, unless you have any additional questions there. Uh, I, I do have a couple <coughs> questions. Um, and they're more for the staff than they are for, for you, I think. Uh, under the, the grants program, the HIV grants program, how long is that is that grant for? It's an annual grant. It's an annual grant. We expect grant. it to continue. Okay. So, in my understanding that we've had like two years now of, of it not being correctly accounted for. True. Okay. Uh, so what happened last year was that uh, we had a new manager come in to the program uh, right before the audit, and the audit identified the compliance issue that we weren't maintaining the eligibility documents uh, that we were supposed to be maintaining. 
and so corrective action was implemented immediately, but that was halfway through last year's audit. Uh, so this year when they went back in, the majority of the issues that were identified were the same eligibility issue because the item hadn't been uh, corrected for the entire fiscal so year. So it's a timing issue and not a, uh, a non-compliance issue. And there was uh, probably one of the eligibility clerks that wasn't performing at 100% also, which uh, the manager has gone back and retrained everybody uh, to make sure that we're compliant next year. But uh, ongoing it should, or going forward, it should not be an issue. Okay, and then the medical assistance program. What was there a dollar amount connected to that um, that we need to make certain that we help to improve there? Uh, <clears throat> that grant is uh, a little over a million dollars, and it's uh, a lot of time studies by a lot of our provider staff uh, and. We need to go back and uh, instill upon them the importance of uh, completing these time surveys and doing them accurately. Uh, most of the issues that were identified were people were signing them prior to the end of the month and then continuing to add time, including the, the supervisory review was before the end of the month and then time was added to the timesheets afterwards. So. Uh, it doesn't appear to be a good way to do supervisory review. Uh, I don't know that we found anything that was wrong. If we had gone back and verified, we probably would have been told that, yeah, I, I signed it because I was going to be there those last three days, but I know that we were working that time. Uh, they spend two hours a day doing this, uh, that kind of thing, but, but we need to change the attitude that we've got to keep accurate records. Can I, uh, just a point of confirmation, actually. So I heard a little bit about this when I was first coming on board. If I understand correctly, there has been some mixture of our uh, medical staff are, are contracted, and I thought there was some efforts made with respect to the contracting element to, uh, uh, to underscore the importance of these time surveys and expectations around uh, physician participation and actually completing them and all a uh, host of other sort of expectations around this. Are you aware of that or did that come up or am I just totally off base with respect to that? Or that? I, I'm not aware of that. I know that it's, it's burdensome to the providers and part of the corrective action is to make it easier to do uh, so uh, finance area is looking into a software package that would automate this process and allow everything to roll up and make it less burdensome. Okay. But based on the amount of money and the time involved, I, I think we just need to go back and work this with the provider community to make sure they participate. And, and then just for, for the board's edification, if I'm, I, I'm saying this correctly, this is the one that's done where it's like a, a snapshot of, it's, you said a month, I thought it was a week, uh, uh, but perhaps it is a little bit longer. Is, is that what it is where we're reflecting like the percentage of the effort that's direct patient care, indirect patient care, and administrative activities? Yes. Is that, okay, well, and is it a month or a week? I believe it's for the full month. It's for the full month of whatever month in question. Right. Okay. It's like right. one month, a quarter, and 
you just right. keep doing it. Right. Okay. Well, you know, still from, from, and I may be completely off the mark here, so tell me if I am, but, but when, I, when I think about all the programs that we're running in the organization and the huge number of services that are, you know, in many instances compartmentalized, et cetera, et cetera, and the grants that we have, to be able to have this as the things that are surfacing, um, well, I, we can't excuse it. We have to stand on top of it. I, th this is really quite remarkable in, in my in my in my window. I mean, to be able to have so many people doing doing this kind of stuff. The the other thing, though, that I also always weigh is whether or not the number of grants and things that we participate in that are external that sometimes, well, they sound sexy or we said, oh, let's give this for our, but what ends up happening is the requirements of uh, part of the grant are not, they, they actually create more work. Not, not just the work, but the hidden expense that we might find. So you gain a million and you get some services for people, but you're spending a million, 500,000 to to be able to run the program because of all the other stuff that, that's involved. So uh, I would think that at some point we really need to do a, 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 yeah, a cost benefit of the kind of programs that we're running. And that's the idea of you know yeah. getting tighter. I think in real time there is, as I said, I think um, this has happened is in real time there is some consideration of that, but whether on an aggregate basis uh, and on a sort of periodic basis do we look back at everything and, uh, 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 take that approach. There may be some opportunity. Thank you. Um, how many programs did you look at when you were? Um, overall, in the single audit, yeah. or two? two? Two. So you looked at two, and two had issues. Oh, we only looked at. Yeah, we go through a risk assessment annually in terms of how we select these programs, and uh, mm -hmm. there's a quite a bit of criteria that we have to consider. Um, since you had the qualification last year on the HIV program, as well as the material weakness, uh, the health system is not considered a low-risk entity. You're actually considered a high-risk entity. And what that means is that we have to select um, programs that, enough programs, um, once we go through the risk criteria, to cover at least 50% of the expenditures on your schedule, so of all your federally reimbursed expenditures. And so I believe with these two programs this year, it covered just over 60% of the entire SEPA. Now, going through that risk assessment, both of these programs I had flagged as high-risk programs. Um, we looked at the other programs that we needed to consider, and we considered them low risk. And because we had enough coverage of your schedule, uh, we didn't have to test additional programs. Then I guess I have to erase everything I said, don't I? So, well, I mean, if you looked at two programs and two programs were not compliant, then. I, I, that's a different, yeah. that's an entirely different. I, I will tell you, looking at that schedule, um, any program that has expenditures of 300000 or more, uh, they're looked at at least on a three-year cycle. So every third audit period, regardless of the risk assessment, it needs to be selected for testing. That is your, your threshold level. I believe that you have um, currently about five programs that exceed that amount. 
but we had looked at the other three and didn't have any other risk factors that we felt um, required selection this year as part of that process. Now, there's a second level of programs. I just talked about type A programs. There's a level of type B programs that uh, are in, within the threshold. The, the floor is 100,000, so anything below 300,000 to 100,000, we also go through a risk assessment there to consider if they need to be selected. Um, and you have a few of those as well. I guess the goal is, you know, shouldn't be any deficiencies. Uh, but you know, to get back to Trustee Lawrence's comment, I mean, there's a risk, I mean, there's a cost-benefit analysis to do here if, you know, because this stuff ain't easy to comply with, that's my guess. So, I'll look at that. Now, now, just a final question. Uh, now that this has been completed, what's the process for communication? Um, and where does this go? And how do more than three board members have information? And so, what what's the process here? Great question. I was going to look to Rick. I, I, your question is not just a misunderstanding question. Your question is not so much about what our process is to follow up on these and actually address them, but more about no. part of communication or well, it's it, well, you know, I, I think you have an obligation and you know mm -hmm. to to go through it and. That looked like you already responded in many instances to the recommendations. So sure. there was there was responses in some instances. I just need to know where does this report from MGO? Where does it go? Who gets it? So I think if our chair was still here, probably I mean my, my familiarity in other contexts is that the, the chair of audit committee reports this out to the full board and whether the questions around it. I don't I don't know if the auditor then presents the same thing or some follow up. Normally it's reported here and internally that's it other than I continue to follow up on the recommendations uh, to make sure that things get fixed and report that to the board at subsequent meetings or to so, the audit board. committee. So this doesn't go to the state? The state it does go to the state. Okay, so there it goes, goes to state. the granting agencies so that they know okay. that we've had uh, deficiencies mm -hmm. noted and uh, that could impact our ability to get future grants because we've had issues. Okay, so it goes to the county. Does it go? It goes to, to the county. It goes to the state. To the county auditors. It goes to the state. Yes. Copies to the board of supervisors. You know what I'm interested in is if it only stays here and it's within management and the board, it's a very insular process, and we're just kind of moving this around internally. So I'm. I'm interested in what the process is to hold a board accountable for a document like this. So as Rick indicated, uh, the State Controller's Office is the agency that oversees all the local um, municipalities, whether that's cities, special districts, and then you have the counties in there. And so they are the state oversight agency. They will look at these. They will perform a desk review of this, um, they will issue us a report on whether or not they think it's in accordance with the standards it needs to be. Um, depending on the type of findings and their level of interest, the significance of those findings, uh, they may ask you to uh, submit follow-up or corrective action. Now, 
management has included their responses in the report, so that is that constitutes the corrective action, as, as Rick says, he's going to be actively monitoring and following up on those. So where it comes into play really is with your grantors. So the county, probably primarily, they give you most of your funding, I would imagine, from what I remember from your CFA. So they may ask you more questions. Um, depending on the level of findings, they may want to come and do additional monitoring or have you um, submit additional reports. Um, but it's really at their discretion. That they have a requirement of what they call subrecipient monitoring, and to the extent that you get pass-through money, so you're not getting money, your dollars aren't necessarily coming from the U.S. Department, the federal department that um, is, the, is these grantors. You're getting it passed through other local agencies, and those agencies have a responsibility to monitor the compliance of their subrecipients. So the county may ask you some additional questions on this, um, but they will, you know, any of your grantors will receive a copy of this report. The whole package. The last thing is, um, it does get filed with the Federal Audit Clearinghouse um, through what we call the data collection process. Uh, that's a federal, um, basically, repository of all of these um, single audit reports, and that entire package includes your financial statements, your single audit report. We have to go through a process um, where we would input certain key information from your single audit report and they have a database. We certify that that information is correct plus the uploaded package as well as management would also certify that. So I've been here four and a half, well, almost five years and we've had deficiencies in the past, but I have never heard of any communication from the county, state, or other uh, relating to the findings, but uh, I will continue to follow up to make sure the corrective action happens in case there is follow-up. I'll just comment. Uh, yeah, I, I think that the ultimate, you know, that the, um, all of that external reporting notwithstanding, I think the responsibility that it lays with management and the board and it's like so these things need to be addressed punto. Well one thing too as part of our reporting responsibility is these comments stay until they are addressed. Yeah. And so um, you know, we, we either clear them with new comments or we can say that they're implemented and resolved. And we do report on that um, in a schedule in these reports each period. Um, to the extent that uh, they are not being addressed and properly monitored, that may elevate them into another, another bucket of, of sure. significance. Yeah. So I think that, that gets back to the importance of what you're doing is to see to it that these things are addressed. Right. Get them. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So. I have one last slide, but I'll be very brief. Um, I just wanted to bring to your attention some considerations for the 2016 reporting period. Uh, 
there is a new accounting standard that will be required to be implemented in 2016. It's GASB Statement Number 72. It's Fair Value Measurement and Application. Um, there are some changes, although not significant, but there are some changes in terms of measurement techniques of fair value as well as there's going to be significant disclosure changes. And essentially, this particular standard is bringing GASB up to the FASB measurement. So what you see in a corporate or nonprofit report with the levels of, of risks of, of an, a particular investment, GASB has finally followed suit in that realm. Um, I think for most of your investments are sitting with the county. I think where this is going to probably become important is with that uh, trust, that pension trust, the Alameda, the $1.7 million to the extent that you have external investments. This may be an, uh, not an issue, but something that will be, need to be addressed in financial reporting. And then the last thing uh, relates to the single audit. Um, there is new guidance on the single audit. It's basically taking eight OMB circulars, one of them being A133, and combining them under what we call the uniform guidance. And um, the second bullet there, tracking funding received after December 26, 2014. None of us will be around. I saw you circle that over there. Um, that is actually December 26, 2014. So, um, you know, we can appreciate the federal government implementing something on December 26th at any time. Um, but that is an important date. That's December 26, 2014. Is any new funding that you receive after that date will be subject to the uniform guidance. Um, there are some changes um, under the new requirements. Um, the county probably will have more changes because they deal with a lot of subrecipients. As far as I can tell, I don't think that currently the health system passes through any monies to other organizations, or at least it's not very significant. But the county, and why this is important to you, they're going to be going through a risk assessment of their subrecipients. And so as we talk about some of these findings, there may be additional scrutiny or inquiries um, that your granting agencies have for your organizations because of this risk assessment requirement. Um, there are some pretty significant new guidelines around procurement, and I just mentioned subrecipient monitoring. And then there are going to be some changes in the audit requirements. Fortunately, they didn't hit us for fiscal year 2015, but some of our risk assessments and thresholds will change. Um, and some of our procedures for the 2016 year end. So I just wanted to bring that to your attention, looking ahead. And with that, I am finished. Any more questions? Um, I think that we would then need to vote to accept the report. And, well, I guess we would accept the report, but refer it to the full board for approval. Our, our general counsel is nodding his head gravely. Yes. Yes. And, and actually, in this instance, you know, I think it would just be appropriate that you get you know, direct, direct staff to present this to the full board for approval. That is next to the business meeting, which is January 2018. Okay. But we were doing 
it now in a special session because the county needed this. So is this sufficient authority to do that? Like your, this is a law question. We should decide what we do because a lot of organizations, they actually delegate to the audit committee the ability to accept the audit. But I don't think I understand that past practice is going to take it to the full board, which is also acceptable. Yes, so the, you know, all of the authority for this committee is contained in the policies and procedures, and it doesn't include that particular delegation. So whatever the county needed, you know, I, you know, if I understand it correctly, the county needed to have uh, these financial statements presented to our board by some date certain. Is that yeah, we, we've, uh, we've actually uh, provided them with a draft of it already, so okay. they're coded along. Sure. Should be good at this point. Well, yeah, I'm just sensitive that if they needed something approved by the board, we can't make that representation. It could, it could be presented as approved, you know, as um, referred to the full board for approval by the audit committee. And if that's sufficient for them, I mean, it's their process, so I'm not going to define the process. Yes, and I, I'm not privy to it, but okay. I, I believe that'll be adequate. I believe that'll be adequate. Well, okay. yeah, so I guess if if he disagrees, then I mean, we'll, we'll have an awful lot of disagree. Yeah, he's not going to disagree. Okay. Well. And for the meeting, I, I think just the summary is sufficient. Yeah. So that would be just the last two slides to review would be sufficient for, yeah. for the board, I believe. Okay. okay. So the last two, you mean the, say the last two slides. In other words, the uh, single audit result, that one. Uh, and then the, there were the, two, the, the, the other one, I don't know what it was called, but yeah, it was the... the yeah, maybe let's try to keep it much thinner for the full board. Okay. All right, well, um, since I've been unanimously appointed temporary interim chair, is there a motion to approve this? Yes, uh, to accept. Uh, to accept this and refer to the full board. I accept and refer to the, oh, I move oh. to accept and refer to the full board. Okay, well I second that and since there's no one else to vote, I guess it um, uh, passes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Uh, Linda, was there anything else you wanted to tell the committee no. in public or in private? No, <laughs> no I, I'm good. Thank you. Okay. Actually, I, I would like, I just would like to express my thanks to management. I know these audits are always a challenging process, but David and, and his team, um, Rick, and I see Benetta over there, but I, I just want to express our appreciation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Best wishes for your holiday and to your staff. Um, no work for your part of this. Thank you. You too. Move on to tab three. There's an information topic. That would be me. That would be you. And With the help of Guy, if necessary. Quiscard, welcome. Thank <laughs> you. So, I, I, I know this is exactly what you want to be doing at seven o'clock on cold December. Nope. I can't think of anything else I'd rather be doing. 
<laughs> Nicely stated. Well, go ahead. Oh, I, we, we, we won't tell your wife what you just said, okay? Thank you. Okay. All right. So I've kind of summarized the results. I, I gave you a long report that was starting on page 122. But basically, uh, at the request of the Audit and Compliance Committee, Internal Audit performed a high-level review of the uh, John George Psychiatric Hospital to identify uh, applicable regulations relating to uh, psychiatric emergency service staffing ratios and fire safety regulations. And uh, the primary goal of this review was to do three things. Uh, determine if there were regulations relating to nurse-to-staff ratios, uh, determine if there were regulations relating to fire safety codes and the capacity of the PES area, and are patients actually sleeping on the floor in the PAS unit? Uh, so doing this review, we identified a number of regulations pertaining, pertaining to nurse-to-staff ratios for inpatient psychiatric hospitals, emergency departments, crisis stabilization units, and dedicated emergency departments, but there was nothing that really uh, was specific to a PES, the, the Psychiatric Emergency Service. Uh, currently, <coughs> uh, John George is using a staff ratio of uh, one nurse to six patients, uh, which is a uh, negotiated union agreement similar to what they do on an inpatient setting. Uh, we had a review by the California Department of Public Health uh, recently. We're expecting a report to discuss what they think about the nurse to staffing ratios and we're waiting on that to see if there's something that's more appropriate. Now, I did look at the ratios. There were a few times that uh, we probably were over the ratio, but uh, for the most part, we we met the one to six staffing. When you say you met the one to six staffing, was that over the course of an entire day? Of a shift. Okay. So, so we had uh, staffing. Uh, we had the census data by shift, and the number of nurses that were present during that shift and just did a straight calculation and that's still a little bit misleading because patients come and go sure. and the census is basically the total number seen during the day uh, so it's probably less than that uh -huh. uh, at any point in time but I, I feel pretty comfortable that we're uh, meeting the intent of the regulation, if not the exact... Uh, so, so over the period of time that you measured, how many, you know, said it went over occasionally? We well, we don't, the, the, the people that did the review only looked at potential peak days, so like okay. Friday, Saturday, Sundays okay. each week. How uh, many weeks did you look at? What were the... What three were months. Did three months. Okay. Three months of activity, basically Friday, Saturday, Sunday, which are usually peak staff or peak census days. Okay. And so you did like, sounds like around 35 to 40 shifts worth of. Uh, 96. Okay. How many were over? Uh, I think there was 
about 37 that were over, so okay. it's roughly 40% if you're only looking at those high volume times. And if it, anything that was over six, uh, based on the calculation, was considered over. Uh, and then a lot of them were 6.1, 6.2. So uh, we can look at that in more detail uh, to see uh, if the census numbers can be fine-tuned to say, uh, yeah, it was 80 for the day, but it was really, or for the shift, but it was really 70 at any one given time, uh, that would be a more extensive review. But just globally, it didn't look too bad. I guess to me, I mean, what's probably more helpful is rather than, you know, when you went over, Figures like is there any way to use that data or information to um, you know, predict or guess for future purposes? So that uh, what I saw was certain shifts in on one weekend uh -huh. uh, might be uh, high, the next weekend way low. So it it. It didn't look to me that there was a, a, a pattern to it uh -huh. that you could uh, guess. But what the staffing, uh, what the staff does there at John George is that if they see that they're getting too full and they're going to exceed the staff ratio, then they make an attempt to call in additional help uh, using a, a services needed a SAM uh -huh. uh, help and. Sometimes they're available, sometimes not. So uh, it's in those periods when they're not available that they end up going over. And, yeah. and if you start doing the, the call tree and can't get anyone to answer, uh, you have a problem. Now, if people are on the call tree, aren't they? Don't, is there some obligation to be available? Or uh, I, I think that these are people that. Are potentially available. It's not that they're committed to be on call for the day. I'm, I'm saying a call tree in reference to here's a list of numbers that we have to to get staffing in here. Yeah. I'm just thinking if you said you were going to be available, you're not available. Then that would be a problem. That would be a problem. Yeah. Strike one from the shoot from the call tree so <laughs> or something like that. What else did you discover? Uh, so we looked at the fire regulations. And there is no official state regulatory rating for room occupancy for a PES. Okay. Uh, what about anything like a PES? <clears throat> there are other things that are available, and it's calculating square footage and dividing by occupancy, and there's some complex calculations. Uh, I did not go through those calculations at this point. Uh, we did interview uh, management from our engineering area, uh, management of John George, and nobody is aware of any rating for those particular rooms uh, for occupancy. Uh, you know, not, not during their watch anyway. Uh, the fire marshal has visited the premises and, and done an inspection, looked at the blueprints uh, early December, and uh, while, uh, according to management, 
they don't want to give an opinion because on occupancy because that might uh, stifle or restrict patients from coming into an emergency setting. Uh -huh. uh, they're supposed to give us a report uh, in the next few weeks. So uh, at this point, we're kind of waiting on those two reports from the regulatory agencies to uh, determine what kind of corrective action is needed here. Okay, the, the third item about patients sleeping on the floor, the answer is kind of, sort of. So they have a number of uh, beds, recliners, couches, etc., gurneys, uh, and when they run out of room and have additional payments, they issue them a three-inch mat the size of a twin bed, Please. give them blankets and pillows, you said patients. Patients. Oh, patients. Yes. yes. Uh, so they will give them blankets, pillows, uh -huh. and they have a bed on the floor. Okay. But it's more like a mattress on the floor. So uh, I don't know that in what context it was discussed that they were sleeping on the floor, but it's not. They're not like sleeping they just have directly to lay, on the floor. Yes. And without having additional room in the PES unit, uh, I don't know what other arrangements they would make. What is, what would be our policy if we had an overflow in, say, the Highland D? I, I just recall, you know, um, you know, my wife needed to go to the ED, uh, the Highland ED, go to the ED once, and there were no bays, so she spent, you know, many hours in the gurney in the, uh, in the hallway, which was, while on one hand no fun, a hell of a lot better than having nowhere to go. Sure. So, well, I mean, how does that, like what's this, is there a similarity between, like what's our policy in the Island ED, if we know, and, I, I and, and, and is that similar? I can't speak to it with uh, definite knowledge, so I have, I have to look at it, but I will tell you that uh, the example you just cited is one that I'm familiar with as well, yeah. that we can do uh, in, in the, the delivery side and ED is particularly really busy because that, that becomes the mechanism by which once you take a, a patient back and you determine that you know, she needs to stay in the area but there are no yeah. available rooms then you know that's it's not uncommon to have people uh, either in uh, chairs in the back or yeah. um, uh, gurneys in the back. It's usually not a situation where I guess you're, you're, you're trying to essentially uh, uh, house someone Overnight, uh, for example, but in the event that that were the case, it would probably be a combination of having uh, those individuals uh, wait in the waiting room where you know you have seating, uh, as well as then in the back a combination of seating if you have it as and gurneys if you, if you have those as well. Yeah, you know, I'm just thinking. I mean, on the one hand, it's never fun. You know, you don't you want to be in the bed. You don't want to be right. on a three-inch mat on the floor. At the right. same time, if your alternative is to figure it out for yourself outside, that's an awful lot worse. Uh, I think that's an awful lot worse. People would yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'm using more than making the point of question. Go ahead. That was pretty much it. Uh, uh -huh. Those are the three issues that I was asked to explain, and uh, I do plan to 
keep monitoring the situation and look at those regulatory reports when they come in to see if there's uh, some action plans that need to be addressed based on that. Did you review, I mean, there's a lot of public comment that went on. Did you review that um, that public comment to see if this, if, it, if this covered all of the assertions that were made at that point? Yes, I did. Yes? Okay. All right, so this is, this comprehensively this covers these regulatory issues. There's uh -huh. a separate set of issues that we're looking at in other ways. Sure. With respect to all of those alleged some violation of the Title 22 and the CPH uh -huh. regulations, this is all. That's that. Okay. All right. Okay. So, thank you, Rick. I, I know this was one of those urgent kind of look at, and um, it, it seems that we are basically in compliance, but at a 40% uh, fallout. And what guy, th this isn't an easy one to solve, it seems to me, because you can't hire more people because in the low times now we're spending a whole lot of money for people who, who you know, with a ratio that you don't need to, it's not affordable. And yet if you can't get people in to help you increase that, at risk of particularly in volatile with volatile folks. So, have you did you talk through what solutions might be available? Um, you know, we're going to have to go at some point whether you did report back to the board that there has been, you know, that we've looked at this and these are the issues. And um, and I, it is complex. I, I recognize that. What what things have we talked about? And I know one was a personnel issue, and I don't, I'm not interested in that. I'm really interested in the ratio safety concern. Sure. Yeah, given Delvecchio a, a comprehensive uh, plan for addressing this in PES, and, and as you said, it is not an easy answer. Uh, one of the situations clearly is to have a larger float pool, a larger SANS pool to call from when we do need additional staff so that we're not understaffed during peak times. Uh, the uh, the manager of PES was directed prior to this to hire additional SANS personnel so we'd have a larger pool. That wasn't accomplished in a timely manner and now we're following up on that and we have positions posted precisely for that so we have additional staff and we have these large numbers of folks coming in. As I look at the numbers... What, excuse me, given sure. that, what, what do you see as the, the possibility? I mean, are they out there looking for jobs? Do, is it going to be tough to find them? So while I appreciate we're going out looking, yeah. that doesn't, if we spend six months looking, we haven't solved the problem. So what, help me understand that. These are gonna to be tough positions to find. Uh, a lot of the folks who are, who are looking for positions are looking for part-time or full-time, they're not looking for temporary. Those that are looking for temporary, we've got a pretty good handle on the market and we're getting most of those folks. Uh, there are, we do get applicants, uh, a significant number that we don't want to bring into our sands. Okay, so that's not a They're solution, fit. basically. Wow. So it's, I think it's a partial solution. I don't think there's any single magic bullet to the whole to the whole issue. Another piece is that our volumes in PES are are measured in two ways. They're measured by folks who walk through the door and actually actually register for the visit. And then they're also measured for productivity purposes for those folks that stay over 24 hours that were waiting for placement or waiting for their, their issues to resolve, the crisis to resolve, and there's no bed available for them on an inpatient setting. Um, when I've looked at the data, and I've shared it with Ovecchio and others, 
uh, our volumes of folks walking through the door seem to be fairly flat over the past year to 18 months. Our biggest challenge is really throughput and land length of stay in PES. And that involves fixing and addressing the processes within PES, the physician activity and productivity, the nursing processes to support that, the assessments uh, that if they're done in a timely manner. A big challenge with that is the availability of psychiatrists in the community. Uh, so again, another another challenging another challenge with staffing. Uh, we are we are recruiting for additional uh, staff. We've just been approved to hire locums, and we've got one on board. And we're looking for two more locums positions. Hopefully, having more physicians. That means temporary staff, temporary physician staff, the contract staff to come in and help us with the throughput and the workflow. Uh, Dr. Zeller has a couple of ideas that we've discussed as, as late as today uh, related to how do we improve the, work, the physician workflow in, in PES and reduce the length of stay. If all of the folks who came to PES were in and out within 24 hours, we'd have an average daily census of about 45. So our challenge is those folks that stay over 24 hours from where to place them and how to get them through the system faster. So if someone stays less than 24 hours, what, where do, do are they sent someplace else for, for care? About approximately 78% of the folks that we see are sent outside, they're sent back home, or they're sent for a lower level of care. The like what? Uh, like subacute care at Villa Fairmont, or a sobering house, or a recovery, a recovery home, or back to their board and care, back at their skilled nursing facility. Uh, that's 78% of the folks. 22% of the folks that we see, we hold on and for a brand patient bed at John George. It's pretty rare that we'll transfer one of those 22% of the folks out to another hospital. Because uh, most of the folks we see are covered by Medi-Cal or they're indigent or health pack patients that we have a, a relationship with the county. And so other hospitals, because they're not reimbursed for these folks, they won't accept them. I think I think that data, particularly about how many refer out and go to, you know, the percentage of individuals who go to various places, certainly I think help to understand what's happening with the patient because knowing uh, uh, so many, and I think mental health issue in this in this state and in this country is a serious is a serious issue, and it's so the needs are so great. So trying to understand whether or not, and 24 hours is obviously going to solve the problem, so trying to understand where they go certainly eliminates this, this immediate problem because I see what you're trying to do is get them out and then the ratio goes down and we're in a much, we're in a much safer environment. So I, I, I think I'm understanding how, how you're processing the throughput, the throughput. Um, but we're going to have to find a way in which we can publicly explain to the board what you're doing and, and very specifically because unless we're pressing you with questions, this is not enough information to satisfy that group of people that I think will be asking you these same questions. Most of the folks that are creating the, the, um, the bottleneck in PES are not waiting to go to a lower level of care. That bottleneck is created by patients who are waiting for an inpatient bed at John George. And we have about 250 discharges a month, or about eight 
discharges a day, and we have a need for about 12 to 16 admissions a day if we did this right. So frankly, I mentioned this before, and I agree that we're underbedded for this population in this county, and our PES isn't large enough to accommodate <coughs> these folks while they're waiting for those beds. So, so to, and maybe Delvecchio, this, this goes to you. How, how knowledgeable is, is the county officials, the board of supervisors, the politicians who can in fact put some pressure on the state to be able to help us with some of these issues? How informed are they of, of this this particular issue? I think you're, well, I, my impression is they're very well informed. And Will Jimenez, who is the director of behavioral health, is very aware of our throughput issues and our lack of beds at John George. Uh, I don't believe at this point there is a political will to build more inpatient beds or to invest in additional infrastructure. Uh, I think there are folks who are looking for process improvements rather than infrastructure uh, capacity issue, uh, capacity improvement. There is an exception to that, and that the county does have, the BHCS does, does have plans on the books to expand crisis stabilization units, which is a form of a PES, a little less acute, but it would help reduce some of the pressure on PES. I don't know how many beds that will be. The plan is to have it in the West Oakland area and to have it run by VACS, which is a community-based organization that does pretty good work in this area. Uh, it's about a year out minimum before the solution is available to us. And again, I'm seeing that the, that the capacity of that crisis stabilization unit will not be anything like the current PES we're running. Most CSUs and most county CSUs, crisis stabilization units that are built, are built to house between 12 and 16 patients, not the 50 to 60 that we get every day at John George. So, so I would just add to that, thank you, Guy. Uh, we've, we've had discussions about this as well. Um, I did actually have the opportunity to meet the county uh, behavioral health uh, director, uh, I guess a little over a, a week or maybe two weeks ago, uh, as we talked about one of those meetings where we were partnering together and talking about all the sorts of opportunities in the community, and I had a chance to understand a couple of things. So I just mentioned the, uh, the efforts via, it's actually a state uh, plan, I think it's SB82, that provides counties uh, opportunity to uh, apply competitively for state funding to actually improve their mental health uh, resources and capabilities. And Alameda County, I think, has already gotten two and is in the process of applying for a third, is what I understand. So the first one funded uh, actually a crisis residential unit that's actually based on the John George campus and is opening this month. No, it opened, no, it opened late October. It opened late October, yeah, okay. So there's one uh, there, but again, small, I think, what, 12? 16 beds. Or 16 beds. Uh, so that's one way in which you're dealing with it. You mentioned the second one, the crisis stabilization uh, unit that's, uh, that just, I think, got through the second or third week of funding, got funded for the county. And I think they're planning to go for yet another one to do more crisis stabilization. So, so while uh, it is, um, I think, probably the right uh, uh, determination that these units don't necessarily improve the uh, inpatient capacity for the county, uh, uh, what it could be viewed as is another way in which the uh, lower level uh, care is not necessarily um, fortuitous if you look at it from a different vantage point, but. Uh, when you're looking at the total volume in a PES, uh, some of the, the uh, uh, comparatively less acute volume that's st still coming to us, this additional capacity creates an outlet for those individuals. So on an aggregate basis, it may actually lower sort of the demand that's on the PES there. It doesn't necessarily address the need for uh, 
uh, acute care there that needs to be uh, done there. Uh, but from a DES perspective, they actually sort of lower the watermark for what that continuous um, uh, capacity is in that space. But I think that remains remains to be seen. They're just different sort of philosophies around the model in which you provide this care. So ours is more of a medical model, whereas this one is more of a sort of a social social Probably a combination of the two is what's needed. I don't know about the relative report. Well, I was also told that uh, that a third of the individuals come come in as, as walk-ins or ambulance, uh, you know, police police or walk-ins, and the two thirds come from our emergency rooms. Is that correct? No, let me let me clarify those numbers for you. Uh, first, is that approximately eighty percent of the folks that come to us come through through via ambulance. 20% walk into our facility. But Via ambulance from a home or street, etc., or so, from our our facility to, to... So let me break that figure down. Okay. okay. So the first is of all of the entire universe of folks that come to PES, 80% come from the field via ambulance. 20% walk into our facility. Now, of the 80% that come to us via ambulance, about one-third of those come from area emergency rooms that are transferred after a medical clearance from an emergency room. Then they're transported via ambulance over to John George. No medical emergency exists, therefore it's a psychiatric group to take care of it. Two-thirds of the folks come directly via ambulance from the field without stopping in a local emergency room. Okay. Because they, they pass the medical field screening that EMS and John George and Dr. Zeller have all agreed to back in 2012. So they come straight to John George. They don't have to go to area emergency rooms. So you just for your information, three of your employees told me the exact opposite. They'd be misinformed. So I just, I mean, I, I, I think they are misinformed, I, I, and I wanted to make certain yeah. that, right. that you have an opportunity, I tell you that, so that it may be they need to understand where those patients are coming from. Right. Yeah. Um, if, I, if I may, uh, please. The, um, the, this is an enormous problem, and you know, the more hands the barrier in terms of fixing it. Having said that, I mean, I, I don't think it's any mystery or surprise that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a big supporter of what you're doing there, and that I think that we need a lot more Jim's opinion, emergency beds as well as acute care beds. You know, we also need a, you know, better, a hell of a lot better care and attention to what happens after you're discharged. Right? Um, you know, when, when someone is discharged from the emergency room, even if they go back into the community or back home, uh, these are folks who are in pretty tough shape. And uh, it's not at all clear to me that they have the support from the family, from you know, the, the, the medical profession from social services to really successfully live in the community. And I think my understanding is an awful lot of people who are coming to our doors have been there before. You know, they're frequent flyers to use the uh, to use the term. So why is that? You know, why is that? So I, I think what I think what we need, if you ask me, is um, this doesn't happen overnight, but we really need you know, we need the short-term plan. How do we de-stress the PES? How do we de-stress John George? 
Um, I think we also need a longer range plan, which recognizes that um, since the time that John George was open, the population of the county has grown, the availability of beds has shrunk, and, and it ain't going to get any better. And so what is the longer term vision? I would, I have a suspicion that confronted with a, you know, a clear-cut long-term vision that, um, um, and this ain't going to be that expensive, but confronted with a clear-cut long-term vision that talks about what is the benefit to the general population. Um, I think there would be a lot of political support somehow. Um, I could easily be wrong because I'm not omniscient, but I have a suspicion that people would support that strongly. So, Jim's opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. The, um, uh, Go for it. It's, it's interesting is that I have an opportunity, I sit on the California Hospital Association Behavioral Health Advisory Board called the Center for Behavioral Health, and I get an opportunity to talk to my peers up and down the state in all the counties. And as challenging as we have it here in Alameda County, they look to us as having resources that very few of them have in other counties. <coughs> Los Angeles, Orange County, including Southern California, struggles mightily, they'll beg you to tell you that. So, and, and, and even given how they look at us, we are, we struggle every day with exactly what you're saying. Yeah. We have about a 15, it varies month to month, about a 15 to 20 percent recidivism rate or readmission rate of folks who have been discharged in 30, in, within 30 days. You'd think that's high, but in behavioral health in other counties, it typically is 40 to 50 percent. So we're one of the lower counties in the entire state on our behavioral health acute recidivism rate. Yeah. So, but, but, but imagine almost any other condition if we, you know, you know 15 percent of the people who had a kidney operation came back within a month. Um, okay. There'd be. Well, actually, uh, it's, uh, so when you think about it from, from uh, uh, just shift to the medical side, uh, the readmission uh, initiatives that were around, you know, yeah. not uh, being reimbursed when, when there's a failure of the system and people end up being readmitted, uh, they focus on a couple of key indicators. One of them was in uh, cardiology with heart failure. Uh -huh. uh, actually, when these efforts started, those the, the, the numbers that John is, or John, correct, the guys saying for behavioral health were, uh, were, were what people were experiencing in those areas too. Okay. Uh, people discharged from hospital acute settings with uh, heart failure diagnosis were experiencing uh, readmission rates in the in the uh, higher well, I'll just say like uh, higher teens and twenty percent, and and so there is an effort to push that down in addition to uh, what's called all cause readmission rates. You're looking at sure, however somebody was discharged, what ends up bringing them back to the hospital, yeah. or that same medication brings them back. But that was deemed you know, unacceptable. <laughs> That's right, and you know, but yet with our recidivism rate, we're you know. Were, were the A students, relatively and, speaking. And unfortunately, the bar. Unfortunately, is, yeah, the, the bar is too low. The yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So no, I think that gets to my prior comments that there's a lot of stuff that happens after your discharge that isn't going on. Mm -hmm. That's um, you know preventing people from actually progressing and getting, getting better. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I was I was going to be a little bit cynical and say that it's uh, there's a combination of motivations that may be around sort of relative uh, proportions of expenditures that are made in other areas and, 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 and you know, the desire to, right. to bend the curve in those areas too. Um, 
the less cynical side of me would say that, and I'm not saying that that's not a motivation for you know why the emphasis uh, came in these other areas, uh, more medical areas. Um, uh, there's a less cynical side of me that would say too that there is maybe a um, a global appreciation that uh, um, while certainly uh, the efforts to uh, reduce uh, readmission around heart failures uh, are, are not necessarily easy things to do, that uh, relative to some of the challenges in the behavioral health space, uh, not just the resources, but also sort of the complexity of what we're dealing with, not that are not dissimilar to some of the other areas where we're not penalized yet around those things would probably be the same sort of uh, mentality that, that, that some of the things are not like as easier to say, you know, you need to make sure people understand that the medications that they get a follow-up appointment and those sorts of things within a timely fashion. So, well, I think, I, the, know. Yeah, I think the, I, the, the challenges with, you know, behavioral health or, you know, cardiac illness, they're both, they're both, I think they're both tractable. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that it's a lot easier, you know, I think it's a lot cleaner to, you know, to say, here's how you address the, the cardiology issues. Uh, the issues with respect to behavioral health are broader ranging. Right. You know, but you talk, but I think you, know, you talk, uh, this is one where you, know, you almost have to talk about societal costs and societal cost reduction because you say, hey, good luck, out you go. And some poor soul who, if, you know, who could be functional ends up on the street, what have you actually done? Uh, well, you know. And there's a clinical piece here that we're all struggling with in the field as yep. it relates to Laura's Law in California. Uh -huh. and that's one of the one of the characteristics of acute mental illness is and chronic mental illness is that people don't recognize when their symptoms are getting worse. Yeah. It's part of the disease. So yep. to force them into treatment now bumps up against patients' right. rights. Yep. And and so we're all struggling with that in yes, this field, especially in this county. Yeah. And then the, the psychotropic drugs that are often prescribed have physical physical ramifications. I just I have a young friend who spent the last month in a coma as a result of this pancreatitis. Just all the drugs she was taking, um, prescribed drugs. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it's a very difficult situation. The the question I'm going back to to the agenda item. Um, how how is uh, the perception now with the employees? Have things calmed down? What can we expect at, um, I, you know, I, I want to make certain that we don't damage the great reputation that John George has. And um, it's so easy to have this thing turn so ugly so quickly. So how are the staff, what kind of means have you had so that that you might, don't have to say it now, a guy, but you might, when you report back to the board, include include the kind of communications that have been going on in your organization, the things that you've been doing so that they have a sense of, you know, they, they were all concerned, and so. Um, well, I appreciate you saying that, and we recognize that, and, and obviously share the, uh, share the concern. And so, uh, you know, there is a, a guy referenced it earlier, there's a multi-prong. Uh, plan that exists uh, with with uh, additional sort of levels of engagement uh, through through uh, many layers of the leadership to engage uh, staff both formally and informally related to uh, uh, true sorts of things, including actually some education around some of the regulatory things that might and hopefully will help to kind of uh, give uh, more people an expert an understanding of you know 
what are the rules and regulations and what may be some of the uh, uh, operational sort of numbers around, you know, what, what, what's dropping patient volume and stuff like that, that uh, we are, uh, we, we've actually started to do it as more work uh, expected, ongoing work expected in this space. And so uh, at the uh, time, maybe the next uh, board meeting, if the boards are designed, we can actually just kind of run through what are some of the initiatives uh, uh, on a one-off basis and an aggregate basis uh, that, that management uh, specifically John George, but as I said, on the multiple models are doing to, uh, in, in, you know, directly related to some of the things that we're yeah, I suspect you should probably put it as an agenda item, only because I think that when you have that kind of backlash, the public response um, is, is a good one to yep. be, so it doesn't appear as if it's being ignored by, by the board nor by management. So sure. um, that would be my suggestion for future. Okay. I think I think we'll look. You know, we are proactive. I think we'll look proactive. That's important. Okay. Understood. Um, but I would also, you know, my passion aside, I would also encourage that you know, that long range plan. I really do think um, you would get a positive response. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And I have had one-on-ones with numerous staff. At staff meetings, and we've gone to leadership, myself included, for the funnels uh, all three shifts throughout the day. Uh, we've been attending staff meetings all three shifts. They occur monthly, but we're doing uh, staff meetings throughout the day, all of the leadership. So uh, they're visible and talking, yeah, to, and, and talking to folks about this. So my impression is is that the edge has come off, has cut, has come off of the issue, but. There's still concern about the specific requests or quote demands of management that we're probably not going to we're not going to uh, um, address in the way they they require. But um, we'll address some. Uh, we may get to the end product in a different using a different route. Yeah, you know, uh, accountability sometimes right. creates you know the disorganization, and I and I respect that and understand it. Um, I think in reporting to the board, the more specificity that you can have, like, you know, the thing that was impressive, and I, kudos to our CEO when he says, you did 23 forums, mm -hmm. and, you know, and I just went to two and thought, oh my God, uh, and he went to, <laughs> he went to 23. Uh, you know, that really says, and it really it paints a big picture. So when you say we have, you know, I've had 12 meetings, I've had, you know, five individual problems. So if you can be specific, it, it, it gives power to to the work that you're doing. No, we can. Okay. Great. Thank you. Sorry. All right. Okay. <laughs> well, um, would there be any request for public comment? Amazing. Amazing. Well, in that case, any other trustee comments or anyone else who wants to say anything? Since I hear no, no, nothing, um, I move that we adjourn. We're adjourned. Thank you, everybody.